0: Today is my fourth anniversary of being your preaching pastor. And I look forward to proclaiming the resurrection from an empty auditorium. (laughs) Because of COVID-19, today on Easter, one-third of the world's population will gather, mostly online, to celebrate, get this, this Jewish guy who only went public for about three years. Now, I do not deny my agenda. If you're not a Christian, my goal is for you to become one. Even if you've met one, even if you've worked for one, even if you've conducted business with a crooked Christian. I want you to become a Christian in spite of the fact that you think we are all hypocrites. I want you to become a Christian even if your mother died way too early or God didn't answer your prayer as a child. The foundation of the Christian faith isn't Christians or answered prayers. It's the resurrection. And most historians, Christian or non-Christian, agree that 2,000 years ago, an entirely new movement and community were formed almost overnight. Immediately, hundreds of people started claiming Jesus rose from the dead, even though it meant they could die for saying it. And it, it had rippling effects One scholar said, within 15 years of the resurrection, the church in Jerusalem grew to 100,000 people. Now, Jerusalem only had 200,000 people. And here's something you may have never thought about because you have jobs, kids to care for, bills to pay. But the people that brought us the story of Jesus present themselves as cowards. They wrote themselves into the story as cowards. When Jesus died, their hopes died. No one was standing outside the tomb going, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. The only thing they were counting were chips as they were putting them in their mouths, sitting on the couch, wondering if they had wasted the last three years of their lives. They stopped preaching the gospel. They stopped attending synagogue services. They threw away their sermon notes. They tossed out their Jesus is the Messiah stickers. They had their tattoos that said, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Removed. Sheepishly, but honestly, they admit we were surprised that he rose. Today, we will read after a guy who wrote an account of Jesus' resurrection. And since we were talking about chips earlier, this guy is a sandwich maker. He is a literary sandwich maker. Mark is his name. Ten times in the book, he starts a story and then interrupts it with another story before finishing the original story. I don't know if you've ever met anyone like that. An older couple in Knoxville kind of organically discipled my wife and I. And she would do this all the time. She would start a story, then she would interrupt it with another story. And before long, you're seven stories in and you still haven't finished the first story. And I always love what her husband used to do because he would look at her and then he would act like he's, he's casting a line on a fishing pole. And then he would say to her, reel it in, honey. It's time to reel it in. Reel it in, honey. And as I read Mark's gospel, I'm wanting to tell him, reel it in, Mark. Reel it in, Mark. But he has a theological and historical purpose for interrupting a story with a story. And here's what it looks like in today's text. Mark's account centers around women. It's it's really a a story centered around women. And he begins by telling a story about women and then interrupts it by mentioning one man and then finishes the story about women. So you're seeing on your screen now, this is how it's laid out. We have the women at the cross and then the women at the tomb and then it's interrupted with the mention of a man named Joseph. Joseph. Now, I'm going to point this out once, so so I want you to hold on to this thought. There's a strange redundancy in the text. Three times within the span of a few verses, Mark records the names of these women who witnessed the cross and the resurrection. One was Mary Magdalene. She used to be possessed by a demon. And now she is the lead witness of the resurrection. Now, I could go into detail about the history of all of these women, but I will not. I do want to go into detail about the significance of women being mentioned in the passage. This is another way of Mark letting us know that he is recording a historical account and not writing a legend. The repeated names of the women are source citations. We could call them footnotes. These women must have been alive at the time that Mark was writing, or he wouldn't have cited their names repeatedly. By including their names, Mark was saying to anyone reading this document, if you want to check out the truth of my story, go to these women. They're still alive, and they can corroborate everything that I have said. If you think that the resurrection was the greatest hoax in human history, let me ask you to consider something. If the disciples were sitting at Dunkin' Donuts and they were conversing on how to get the most people to believe this lie of the resurrection, would they have the primary witnesses of the resurrection as women? Celsus, a Greek philosopher who lived in the second century, he was actually a guy who was highly antagonistic toward Christianity. And he wrote a number of works listing arguments against it. And one of the arguments that he believed was the most telling was this. Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And, I'm quoting him here, we all know women are hysterical. End quote. Just to confirm, I didn't say that. That's, Celsus said that. And many of Celsus's readers agreed. For them, this was a major problem. In ancient societies, women's testimony was considered unreliable, not accepted by the court. If, if people were trying to make this story believable, they would have written women out of the story. Instead, they are the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' empty tomb. And the only possible reason for the presence of women in this account is that they really were present and they really did report what they saw. Now allow me to give you a listening guide to process my exposition today. You type a will enjoy this. The rest of you will say, you know, whatever, get on with the story. But we are about to attend two events. The first is the funeral of Jesus. And the second is the resurrection of Jesus. So we'll begin first with the funeral of Jesus. Now, I never alliterate anything in preaching. In fact, I usually make fun of pastors who use alliteration. But this week, I was feeling a little spicy. So here's what I have for you in this section. Okay, We have the funeral planner, the funeral place, and the funeral participants. Just go ahead, give me a King Jimmy and a tie and call me a fundamentalist. All right, we'll begin with the funeral planner. Notice in verse 43. We are introduced to a man in this story known as, as the text says, Joseph of Arimathea. John says he was a covert disciple of Jesus. He was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. At the trial of Jesus, there were a group of 70 judges. And he was a dissenting member of that group who did not support the decision to execute Jesus Christ. Maybe he voted no that night but was outnumbered. I tend to think that he wasn't present because Scripture says all the judges agreed. So maybe they had a quorum without him. But he, like so many others, had such high hopes for Jesus. But they were dashed at the cross. Still, his love for Jesus moved him to go public and make his affection for Christ clear. It's now Friday. Friday before the resurrection. Some call this Good Friday. Friday. But there was nothing good about it. Watch Joseph go public with his love. Follow along as we begin in verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So we see already the judge was the funeral planner. Now notice the funeral place in verse 44. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. I remember going to a funeral of someone who took us on life outside of a bar. He got in an argument with his girlfriend and he left the bar mad, left her inside. So he sat in his pickup truck. It was just him and his gun. And that is how she found him moments later. I'll never forget that funeral. I'll never forget lowering a 22-year-old boy in a casket, lowering him into the ground. His younger brother literally jumped on the casket and began yelling, don't take my brother, don't take my brother, don't take my brother. It It was one of the saddest things I've ever seen. The only thing that I could think of being sadder is if you're at a funeral and no one yells or even thinks, don't take them away. And that's what it was like at Jesus Christ's funeral. There were no hymns sung, no scripture read, no family seated close to the casket, no flowers, no casserole waiting for people at the house, no half-brother jumping on the casket because the half-brother thought that Jesus had lost his mind. The book of John informs us that Joseph buried Jesus in a tomb that had never been used. And, and that is huge. Because in the first century, tombs were reused over and over and over again. When the body finally rotted, someone would collect the bones, put them somewhere else, and put another body in the tomb. On top of all that, normally convicted criminals like Jesus, convicted criminals who died by crucifixion, would be left on the cross to be eaten by predators like dogs or birds of prey. Criminals did not get buried. What was left of the corpse would then be thrown into a garbage heap outside of the city known as the Valley of Hinnom. Isaiah 53.9 says Jesus, the Messiah, will be buried with... The rich. You see, rich people had their own tombs. They did not have caskets that were used by other people. This is actually another fulfillment of prophecy. The chances of a criminal being buried was slim. The chances of a criminal getting an unused tomb was astronomical. Grave robbing was really big in the first century because people were buried with their possessions so they would roll big stones in front of the opening. You see two pictures on your screen. Notice how the stone is, is sloped toward the, dry, toward the doorway. So it could be easily rolled into place. But to roll the stone aside would require the strength of several men. Once the body of Jesus went through that opening, they would place him, as you see on the other picture, on that, on that little shelf. The implication of Joseph's action does not exclude the presence of others who assisted him. In fact, literally, the the verbiage there is he caused the body of Jesus to be taken down. He caused the body of Jesus to be wrapped. The removal of the body, the closing of the entrance of the tomb, and the other preparations could not have been accomplished alone. So many scholars believe he had employees to assist him. Joseph, the funeral planner... Brand new tomb, the funeral place. Now, the funeral participants. Notice verse 47. Mary Magdalene, the mother of Joseph. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus was laid. So get this picture here. Mary and Mary hurriedly applied some spices, but evidently they did not give it the full treatment that you would give a loved one's body. They didn't have enough time. They had to get him in the tomb before Sabbath. They had to get him in the tomb before Saturday. Actually call this Saturday the silent Saturday. Because there's very little documentation from this day in the Bible. My wife woke up yesterday on Saturday. And she looked at me and she said, I wonder what the disciples thought when they woke up on this day. Silent Saturday. If their hopes were dashed. They were filled with anger. See, Jesus was crucified on Friday. Things were silent on Saturday. We attended the funeral of Jesus. Now let's attend the resurrection of Jesus. We jump in now to Mark 16. Notice in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed. Let's stop there. Jesus was in the tomb part of the day Friday, all day Saturday, and part of the day Sunday. So two nights and three days. Jesus said, I will rise on the third day. Now, Jesus said, I will rise on the third day. He actually said that in the same book, Mark chapter 8. And then Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, I will rise on the third day. Then Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, I will arise on the third day. I mean, you would think the disciples would say, hey, it's been three days. Let's just go check out the tomb. Nope. Is is that salt and vinegar chips? Could you pass those over here? I need some Doritos as well. Nothing. And the women were better, but not by much. They left at the crack of dawn to finish the job of applying the spices properly. And it's not uncommon to find perfume bottles and ointment jars in excavated tombs today. Verse 3 actually talks about a conversation they're having as as they're walking. And one looks at the other and says, Who is going to roll away the stone for us? And the other Mary responds and she says, We need some stone rollers. These men actually existed. Their professional job was rolling stones away. Notice verse 4 as it narrates the approach. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe and they were alarmed. These majestic beings say, why are you looking for the living one in a cemetery? These women did not expect a resurrection at all. Edward says, the visit to the tomb is vintage marking our irony. The living are consumed with death and the crucified one is consumed with life. Angels proclaimed the resurrection to women. This is not just a nice story. This is rooted in history. The first time it was preached was not in an empty auditorium. The first time it was preached was in an empty tomb. Now allow me to pose a a question. Why did God... Move the stone. You say, well, Kyle, that's, that's easy. So Jesus could walk out. I don't think so. God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus had a resurrected body. Jesus could simply walk through the stone like he did later, walking through walls. God didn't move the stone for Jesus. God moved the stone for Mary and Mary and you in me, When the stone was rolled away, the rock of ages had already rolled out. Now, how shall we respond to this resurrection? I want to give you six suggestions. Six suggestions on how to respond to this resurrection. Suggestion number one, examine all the evidence. There are eight major resurrection theories that people promote to explain away what I just unpacked to you. Uh, The first one I like to call is the dog theory. And this teaches that dogs just came and ate the body of Jesus. That's why the women couldn't find it. The second theory is called the swoon theory. This view argues that Jesus did not really die, but fainted because of an enormous physical punishment he suffered. I actually do this all the time. Anytime I see any blood, I'm, I'm gone. I pass out. I don't call it swooning, though, because that's weak sauce. I call it getting knocked out like Tyson. This swooning theory teaches that Jesus regained consciousness in the tomb, unwrapped himself, and managed to move the stone by himself. Once he emerged, Jesus convinced his followers that he had risen from the dead. A barber theory, the University of Sydney, Australia, says Jesus was given snake poison to fake his death, and then he later recovered. But there's one main problem with this. And that's that John tells us that the Roman centurion actually pierced his side to make sure he was dead. And this Roman centurion knew how to tell if a person was dead. Jesus wasn't swooned. He was dead. The old King Jimmy says, he stinketh. and puts it well. The third theory is what I call the spirit theory. The Jehovah Witness cult holds to this view. Their own magazine, The Watchtower, asserts, King, Je- King Christ Jesus was put to death in the flesh and was resurrected an invisible spirit creature. Spirit resurrection. Alright, then the fourth view is the legend theory. Basically, this is the view of the infamous Jesus Seminar. And this theory holds that over time the Jesus stories were embellished and exaggerated. Then we have the fifth, the conspiracy theory. This is the earliest of theories. You can find it in Matthew chapter 28. It records that the soldiers who guarded Jesus' tomb were bribed by the Jewish leaders to lie and say that his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. And then one of the most ridiculous is the wrong tomb theory. And this is simply that the women went to the wrong tomb on Easter morning. They left and began teaching that Jesus was risen. Everyone came to see and they went to the wrong tomb as well. They should have been looking next door. And then you have the twin theory that Jesus had an identical twin brother. They were separated at birth. They did not see each other again until Jesus was on the cross at the crucifixion. Following Jesus' death, his twin stole his body and pretended to be the risen Jesus. Like Like... first-century version of the movie Parent Trap. And then the eighth view is, is called the Muslim theory, that Jesus didn't die on the cross, only someone who looked like him. And according to the Quran, this is what Muhammad taught. So let me give you just a rebuttal to all of those eight theories. None of these naturalistic theories stand up to careful analysis, and many of them have been abandoned or substantially revised. And the proponents were selective in the biblical data they affirmed, accepting whatever helped their theories and rejecting whatever did not. Some that denied the resurrection, they say, well, people in the first century were more likely to believe than us. They were more gullible. We have Instagram. But really? Skeptics sometimes say, you Christians just believe everything you've been told. Well, that works both ways. C.S. Lewis says, we're all tempted to chronological snobbery. We want to think that the past was less intelligent and less able than the present. Don't be a chronological snob. Don't be lazy. Examine the evidence. Some of you listening to me are are former skeptics and some are current ones. And we, we welcome your presence at Faith Family Church. Once COVID 19 is over, we welcome your presence to Faith Family Church. And we welcome your questions. We would love to dialogue with you. We don't feel like we have anything to hide. Some of you have heard in college that Jesus' death was buried, was borrowed from pagan mythology. And there's zero evidence for that. It's not true, and I can prove it to you. The Greeks didn't believe in a resurrection. They believed you needed to discard the husk of the body so that the soul would flourish in the afterlife. You can't borrow resurrection from people who don't have it. N.T. Wright said outside of Jerusalem, nobody believed in a resurrection. Jewish people only had a foggy view of the resurrection and even it was distorted. They viewed the resurrection as national, not individual, that the whole nation would arise at, at the end of time. And I'm, I'm trying to tell you, you don't have to reject intellect to be a Christian. Bring your brain to the Bible. It can handle it. Why don't we find anything enshrined to Jesus? Why is, why is nothing of Jesus' enshrined? Why is his tomb not enshrined, his sandals You can visit places today where holy men and holy women have died and there will be flowers and cards and candles and memorials. None of that was found at the tomb of Jesus. James Dunn, a New Testament scholar, says there is no evidence of any veneration at the tomb of Jesus. Crowds didn't flock there. They didn't light candles. They didn't mourn and weep. Why? Because he wasn't there. History reveals clearly that it was customary for the tomb of the prophet or the holy man to be preserved as a shrine. The non-Christ following Jews follow Abraham. They know where he is buried, Hebron, and many make a pilgrimage to remember their dead leader. Buddhists follow Buddha. He's buried in India. His followers to this day, pilgrimage there, they mourn and weep. Those who follow Islam know that Muhammad is buried in Medina. They pilgrimage there and they wish he was still alive. Those who love Elvis know that he's buried and they pilgrimage to Graceland. Why don't Christians make pilgrimages? Because our leader isn't dead. Non-Christian, don't get lost on issues like dinosaurs and if Adam had a belly button. No, deal with the empty unenshrined tomb resurrection suggestion number two after viewing the evidence you should repent of your sin and trust Jesus Christ as your savior the president from the seminary where I graduated Daniel Aiken said that he had a friend named Mike who was an atheist Mike went over to Aiken's house to have dinner. Aiken, the Christian, asked Mike, the atheist, what is the bottom line when it comes to Christianity? Mike quickly responded and said, that's easy. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the resurrection is true, then so are a number of other things. And then he began to list them. There is a God. Jesus is that God. The Bible is true. Heaven and hell are real. Jesus makes the difference whether you go to one or the other. Aiken's atheist friend Mike is right on all accounts. Christianity stands or falls on the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. No resurrection. No Christianity. And and I don't know if this particular skeptic ever came to Christ. But I do know of a couple others who did come to Christ. Like James, the half-brother of Jesus He didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. That's why he wasn't at his funeral. Yet something happened that transformed James from a doubter to a believer, from a skeptic to a leader in the church. What was it? The resurrected Christ. James believed it so deeply that he suffered martyrdom for it. Now, the the second skeptic was was a first century guy. Maybe you've heard of him. uh, Saul, later called Paul. Saul used to have a hand in killing Christians until he saw the resurrected Christ, and it changed him. And some of you are skeptics, and you have been visiting our church for a long time. You've been listening to our sermons for a very long time, and you're emailing us about this. And, and a lot of you are saying, I'm on a journey. You're using the journey language. I'm, I'm on a journey. And sometimes that is merely an excuse not to act. The whole point of a journey is to arrive at a destination. At some point, you need to make a decision. Come to this resurrected Christ holding nothing but your repentance for sins. And then have this Christ even wash those in his precious blood. Application number three. Celebrate this resurrection on Sundays. Celebrate this resurrection on Sundays. And how we miss celebrating corporately on Sundays, for centuries, Jewish identity has been connected to the observance of the Sabbath, Saturday, a day that is honored and kept sacred to the Lord. And they had some reasonable restrictions like not working, closing down all shops. And then they had some real legalistic restrictions like not cutting your nails I want you to understand, they held a crazy devotion to the Sabbath. A crazy devotion to the Sabbath. Yet, something extraordinary happened around AD 30 that caused a large group of Jews in Jerusalem to change their day of worship from the Sabbath to Sunday. And they celebrated the resurrection by changing the day. They they celebrated it. By taking the the bread and the cup. Christian scholars and non-Christian scholars will will agree and admit that the earliest Christians celebrated what we call communion or, or the Lord's table. When your leader is martyred, you don't celebrate their death. You mourn it. We celebrate the birth of Lincoln and the birth of Martin Luther King. We don't have little ceremonies to celebrate how they were murdered. But yet we do with Christ. Why? Because he's alive. He's alive. Suggestion number four. Proclaim it to the nations. Proclaim it to the nations. This generation of Christians is responsible for this generation of souls all over the world. And let this resurrection drive you to the nations. Let it drive you to unreached people groups. Let it drive you to your neighbor when it's safe. Let it drive you. C.S. Lewis in uh, the screw tape letters said the earliest converts to Christianity were converted by a single historical fact, the resurrection, and a single theological doctrine, redemption. Tell the nations that Christianity is not a leap into the dark, but a leap into the light. Suggestion number five. Proclaim the resurrection to yourself. Proclaim the resurrection to yourself. What does that mean? It means you must preach this resurrection to yourself. Preach it to the nations, for sure. But you must absolutely not forsake preaching it to yourself. Mark's gospel is really, is really Peter's gospel. Peter was his source. We didn't get to verse 7 in our text, but verse 7 says that the angelic beings instruct the ladies to go tell the disciples about the empty tomb. And, and, and this is the words it used. It says, tell the disciples and Peter... Of all the disciples, Peter's the only one mentioned by name. And only Mark's gospel includes this. So how did Mark hear about it? Peter told him, And Peter never got over Mary and Mary running into the room saying, an angel is declaring the resurrection of Christ from an empty tomb. And and there's a group of men sitting there. and, And they wanted us to tell you disciples and Peter. There's just so much. There's a gospel in that statement. And Peter. Peter had just denied the Lord three times at his trial. Now Peter hears that this gospel is not about him. It is about the resurrection. It is about grace. It is about forgiveness. This message doesn't say, Peter, clean up your life. Straighten up. Fly right. And then maybe Jesus will accept you. No. I've got something for the disciples and Peter. And you may just want to put your name there. And Kyle. Have you sinned? Then friend, your only hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You must preach the resurrection to yourself every single day. This isn't a message just for Easter. You need this resurrection. The last suggestion is suggestion number six, and it's this. Let's, let Christ's resurrection remind you of your coming resurrection. Let Christ's resurrection remind you of your coming resurrection. The coronavirus has brought a lot of people physical, mental, and emotional suffering. Physical, mental, and emotional suffering. Some of you had those three things long before COVID-19 ever showed up. And so how does this passage speak to you? Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, Suffering is intolerable if you aren't certain of your salvation. If you know Christ as king, this life is as close to hell as you will ever have. The resurrection is more than a consolation for what you've lost. It's a restoration for what you've lost. Tim Keller, uh, New York City's Yoda, says this. You don't just get the body you had back. You get the body you always wanted back. You don't. Just get your life back. You get the life you always wanted back. See, you're not made for this life. You were created for resurrection. And Easter and funeral services shouldn't be the only times we reflect on the resurrection. Don't just die with resurrection hope. Live with resurrection hope. D.A. Carson said, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. I wish I could say that in his Canadian accent. I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. Joni Erickson Tata, a Christian author and radio host, is a quadriplegic. She was in an accident when she was 18 years old and was paralyzed from the neck down. You'll see a, a little picture of her pop up. This is what she says about the resurrection. And I quote... I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, no feeling from my shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives to someone who has a spinal cord injury, like me? Or someone who has cerebral palsy, is brain injured, or has multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope this gives to someone who is a manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, new hearts, and new minds. Only in the message of Christ, only in the message of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. In another place, she said, She said, I can't wait for the day when I'm given my brand new glorified body. I'm going to stand up, stretch, dance, kick, do aerobics, comb my own hair, blow my own nose. And what is so precious is that I'll finally be able to wipe away my own tears. But I won't need to. Because God promised in the book of Revelation that he would wipe away every tear. Friends, only in the resurrection of Jesus Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope and we praise his resurrected person thank you for listening to this resource of faith family church we gather on sundays at 495 hugh hunter road in oak grove kentucky and are a short drive from fort campbell and hopkinsville kentucky as well as clarksville tennessee for more information visit our website myfaithfamilychurch.com